Stephen Nichols has written a helpful little book called A Time for Confidence, which argued that new difficulties in, in the Western world in particular don't mean that it's time to be afraid, but to be confident in the Lord. And so we must decide. It's an action. We have to decide our outlook on the crumbling world outside and choose if we will fear it or be confident that God is the sovereign ruler and that Christ is the Lord who will return to deliver his people and destroy the rebels. And I think obviously you know I'm going to say we need to choose confidence in Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6-13, Paul put his primary focus for hope on Christ's return. That royal visitation that we saw in chapter 2 and how the king will have a various arrival at the last day. But now, so we've taken a break for a few weeks and we need to catch up with where we are, what's going on here. Uh, in this series. And so in all of our studies in First Thessalonians so far, we've traced Paul's concern for these new or young Christians in Thessalonica. We heard his despair at having to leave them abruptly. We, we've seen as well that Paul wanted to provide them with words of hope to help them persevere during times of difficulty. <clears throat> And throughout these chapters that we've read so far, we have seen Paul return to those themes of the doctrine of election, imitating the godly example, and the return of Christ as his major ideas that he intended to spur them forward in faith. And so to sort of reflect on those for just a moment, he assured them in chapter 1, he was convinced... They were among God's chosen people, if you, if you remember that, which, which should give them courage to press ahead if they know God is with them, that they belong to Him. And then in chapter 2, Paul explained various ways that his desire to see these, that he desired to see these new Christians so that he could be of encouragement to them and make sure that they were, they were growing in their newfound faith. And then we saw in in the first half of chapter 3, Paul having no other recourse and not being able to stand any longer, not having a connection with the Thessalonians, he sent Timothy to check on them and perform some pastoral duties among them. And then in tonight's passage, we finally get to the end of this sort of narrative section where he's been recounting his concern and his motives to send Timothy and we get to the happy ending of Paul's story about longing to check on them and Timothy returned and brought back good news that the Thessalonians were in fact continuing in their faith and so then Paul diverged into this string of thanksgiving rejoicing over that good report But as we have read Paul express his deep concern throughout this letter, we may be wondering why Paul was so exercised to know how the Thessalonian Christians were doing. And our passage 
gives us an answer for that question. So the main point is that Paul was deeply concerned about hope and holiness and rejoices to hear that the Thessalonians had not abandoned them, which should be a model for us. And so again, Paul was deeply concerned about hope and holiness and rejoices to hear that the Thessalonians had not abandoned them. And again, it should be a model for us to follow. And we'll explore this in three points. The necessary choice, the needed correction, and the nearing coming. And so first, the necessary choice. Now I think all of us know that Christians today deal with a rapidly changing world that asks us to revise our values and views at an increasing pace. Maintaining our supposedly, underlined supposedly, old world views makes us at least culturally backward, we're told. And it can can be frightening for us to live in a world like this, even for the most even-keeled of Christians. We, We might feel, we might feel as though things are worse than ever and that we are watching the end of the world. And the thing is, so now, I am really aware that church historians are typically useless, but I think I can bring something relevant here. So in all the old books that I've read, I have yet to come across any theologian say something like, you know, now society has come to its pinnacle, And the church has it all together, and all we have to do is keep things like this. If you find that, that is the obscure exception, uh, because I don't think it exists. Because the tenor across the history of the church has always been, the world's falling apart, it's worse than ever. And it's the refrain in every generation. And, And the point... Of, of that historical observation is to show that Christians have always felt that pressure from the world and, and we've never been impressed with the global state of affairs. So when we feel out of step or uncomfortable with the world, we're just keeping company with the entire history of the church. And that puts us in a relatively good place to be among the history of God's people. And Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6-13 confirm that uh, this concern has been built into God's people even from the birth of the church. Remember, I mean, remember this. Uh, as we noted in the first sermon of this series, that this is likely Paul's first inspired letter that he wrote. So in other words, to, why is that relevant here? There's, there's always been, since Paul started writing, there's always been a need to make a choice between cowering and being afraid of the world or strengthening ourselves in hope as followers of Jesus. So look at verses 6 to 8 
with me, if you would. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. So now, Paul has written all of this book so far because he's worried about how the Thessalonians were faring as the city around them possibly became difficult for Christians. And does that point bring new light to why Paul has stressed so much that God had made his ministry successful as evident in light that they had believed the gospel? I mean, do do you see that connection? They, They needed to remember that their moment in time was not one where they had thought one and now they needed to catch up with what world culture had figured out and what they had simply missed. Instead, they needed to remember that they had believed the gospel as the alternative to the world's outlook and there was still power in that gospel Paul's anxiety to know if the Thessalonians believed the threatening world or if they had remembered that they had trusted in Jesus Christ sovereign lord of all things has been clear throughout this letter and that should Help us understand the flood of rejoice that comes when we learn that Timothy has come back with good news about the Thessalonians. I mean, here's here's one thing to note. It is far from insignificant that here in verse 6, that word for good news, about it is the same word that we translate as gospel. I mean, gospel means good news, but it is the same. In that original text. So, so this is of gospel relevance. That the Thessalonians were pursu- that they were continuing in faith and love. That they remember their pastors fondly instead of as backwoods myth mongers that have peddled a message that is far more trouble than it's worth. That's good news. Because God is at work. And despite all the troubles Paul faced since he left, that was of massive comfort to him. It was even a breath of life, as we read in verse 8, that sustains his soul just to know that the Thessalonians were standing firm with him in Christ. And so the, the necessary choice for the Thessalonians was between fearing the world and trusting the Lord. And brings us to our second point, the the needed correction. I'm, I'm guessing that it is already apparent to most of you the obvious connection between the horizons of this text and your 
everyday lives. No, no less than the way that the Thessalonians, that we've seen that the Thessalonians faced the pressure to get on board with societal religion. I mean, each of you likely faced the temptation, at least the temptation to worry about Christian life that is not palatable to the so-called progressive society. But we need to see that our default should not be fear, but hope and confidence that results in deeper holiness. And so let's think about verses 9 and 10 together. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? And so we see here that Paul reacted to the good news that the Thessalonians were persevering by melting into this heap of thankfulness. Now, the, the ESV did a good job of making this idea clear, this thankful expression clear, which is really good. So I'm not critiquing it, but I think that we might be able to see more clearly Paul, the nature of Paul's uncontainable joy if I read to you sort of a really literal translation of this. And so just to, just to point out that uncontainable nature of Paul's joy, because what thanksgiving are we able to return to God concerning you because of all the joy with which we rejoice because of you before our God? Now, here's, here's what I hope you noticed, is the sort of repetition and, and circularity of that verse that is, that isn't typical of Paul's sort of sharp and linear style. I mean, that, that somewhat convoluted phrasing, intentional, at least in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, though, it has a point. It shows how this joy about the Thessalonians' faith was just gushing out of Paul. He didn't try to put joy in razor-sharp logic, but let it fizz over in bubbles of thankfulness to God. And we also see, though, that Paul's joy is directed at a very specific object. The Thessalonians' perseverance in salvation. Which actually, I mean, it gives us some insight in to Paul's response to the issues of cultural convulsion against Christian ideals. He, he prayed night and day that God would preserve His people and that they would keep a vision of God before them. And so, do you see here what this tells us about Paul's solution to out there? Do, do you see where he pointed us to go when we might feel scared to know the cult, culture is against us? 
He pointed us to Christ. He pointed us to the pursuit of salvation and holiness as we fix our eyes upon Jesus. And and so here's where, I mean, if this is the needed correction, here is where I want to try to adjust our thinking. (coughs) It, It shocks me that so many times think the answer to an impinging culture is fix the culture. Let's go save and redeem the endeavors of this society. Let's make Christian movies and Christian paintings and Christian rock music. Let's infiltrate the upper echelons of culture so that we can Christianize things again. And I just, I don't see that in Scripture. We see the church in the New Testament described like Abraham in the deserts and the Israelites in Babylon. Friends, we are, we are not fundamentally the movers and shakers of society. We are pilgrims and exiles. Our, our homes are not here, nor should we try to renovate the world as if God loves godless artifices of human achievement. Christ has left to prepare a place for you, and we will receive it when He returns. Should we really prefer things that we may attain here over the things that Jesus is building for us? And so on the one hand, we should not pretend that things out there are presently or currently Christian now. And on the other hand, we should not pretend that things out there are ultimately important. Ultimate. They are important. I'm seeing ultimately. So one year I attended the General Assembly for the, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland and there was a, a very brave young girl that addressed issues of youth discipleship. And she stood up in front of this room and looked at all of these ministers and elders. And she said, you've been treating us as if we're living in Jerusalem, but we've been growing up in Babylon essentially indicting most for not providing actual spiritual discipleship. Dear God, I pray that the young people at Second Saint Field don't feel that way. But what, what a tremendous insight. And our reaction to that will also reveal our deepest love. Do we respond to that in efforts to redress society as Jerusalem? Or do we point that girl and the youth of all of our churches around the world to Jesus Christ and a specific clear gospel? 
Paul was concerned to see the Thessalonians look to Christ, not to make Thessalonica into the theocracy. And so we don't pretend that things out there are currently Christian. But nor do we pretend that they are ultimate, of ultimate importance. Because the other temptation, besides pretending that everything is okay, is to pretend that we can paint over the godless foundations of cultural endeavors and make them godly. I, I was listening to some podcasts this week about, uh, just, they were discussing Christians pursuing what is true, good, and beautiful, which, which indeed is, is what we should do. We should pursue the true, good, and beautiful. But it struck me that the entire focus was on artistic things, which is good. I mean, artistic things are, are wonderful. But why, why is that the default when we talk about transformation? Why are the high cultural aspects the things we think of? Why are the glitzy and flashy things the things that we really want to win for Christ. I mean, so I, I know that I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, and we may not be as fancy there as wherever people who think this way are from. I mean, Birmingham is just an old steel town. But I do, I do wonder why we think music, painting, and coffee roasting are the primary true good and beautiful things that we should use to point towards point people to Christ it's not clear to me why indie rock is more useful in God's plan than a father who works at a steel company or for the railroad who comes home and points his kids to the love of their Savior. What painting endeavor surpasses a father investing deeply in his kids to direct them to the Lord Christ for salvation? How in the world is indie rock more beautiful than a wife who cherishes her husband because he loves her like Christ loves the church? Because these are things of deep truth, goodness, and holiness. And those actions are of more heavenly and earthly good than any cultural mess that we might wish we could redeem. We get so trapped in those things, those artistic high culture endeavors, and we miss the genuinely beautiful that Christ is doing now in hearts and minds to shape families, redeem people, save the lost, and renew them in holiness. We miss how we 
even now should thank God that he sustained these Thessalonians 2,000 years ago. We should be thankful for that. And we should be thankful that he sustains us each day, having us wake up each morning still believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The needed correction is refocusing on things that genuinely point us to Jesus Christ and further us in our likeness to Him. Our hope is not in this world or the endeavors of its culture. We lose our hope when we think it is, which is why we must choose confidence in Christ. And it brings us to our third and final point, the nearing coming. <clears throat> so, okay, put this back in the big picture. We're, we're thinking about Paul's deep concern for holiness, which is, which is why he's been so worried about these Thessalonians, and now we see that he is so very thankful that they are still pursuing the Lord. And so first, we, we considered how we have to choose between fearing <clears throat> external pressure and remaining hopeful and confident in Christ. And, and then we thought about how Paul was thankful for perseverance and salvation and holiness. Because it is that pursuit of Christ that will result in endurance until the end. And so now we need to address the future hope which Paul held out for us. So if you will, read verses 11 to 13 with me. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. <clears throat> so I need, to, I need to make two doctrinal observations and then draw together that for some application. And so first, I want to point out, did you notice here in, in these verses how Paul prayed to our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus. Did you see that? And so now we should all know that prayer is directed to only the true God. And so when Paul turned his prayers to the Father and to Christ, he was again assuming, like we saw in chapter 1, he was again assuming that the person Jesus Christ is God. And so this, this point is further evidence for our understanding of the Trinity. God is one in essence, three in person. And we see this Trinitarian point again in verse 13. So there Paul, Paul quoted from Zechariah 14, verse 5, that, that we've read early in earlier in the service. And that verse says, then the Lord, my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Now note, 
that that says holy ones with him. And so this is about that last day. I mean, I'm sure you gathered that as we read that passage that that it's about that last day, climactic, apocalyptic day of the Lord in which God comes to deliver his people and judge his enemies. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul applied this act, this act of returning as God, this act of God, he applied it to the person of Christ. So do you see the relevance of that? There's an event that God is the actor. And in the New Testament, we see that Christ is going to be the one doing that action. And so, what this means for us is that within the full story arc of the whole Bible, Jesus Christ performs the actions of God and will again in that royal visitation with all his holy ones. And I know it says saints here in uh, the ESV, and it should be holy ones because I think it's actually referring, like in Zechariah 14, to angels, referring to the army armies of angels that will come help the Lord Christ purge the earth. And that coming for Christians is our hope. Only for Christians. It is a day of judgment for those not in Christ. But for us who believe in Jesus, it is a day of hope. It is the day of the culmination of our redemption. And so the first doctrine there, observation, was Paul's Trinitarian prayers. And second, when Christ comes, verse 13, He will establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Now, okay, so here's the thing. At least one commentator, even a supposed Reformed commentator, said that this passage means that you have to be characteristically blameless in holiness to pass the last judgment to get into heaven. So he, so some people take this to mean that this blameless in holiness is something you need to do for God to let you into the eternal kingdom on the last day. And that, uh, by the way, that and every minutely revised version of that is the Roman Catholic view of salvation. And I just want to ask, if you stop for a second and read this text with me. I mean, read that verse. What does it say? I mean, I'm not trying to be fancy. What do we actually see here? Who? Wait, I mean, you read it. Who is doing the work? Who is performing that action? Does it say that you must become this blamelessly holy person to enter heaven? Does it say that? Certainly, I mean, it doesn't. No, it doesn't say that at all. It says plainly that the triune God will make you blameless in holiness. It states clearly, point blank, not that you have to pass a final test, but that those in Christ will be changed by God to become entirely Christ. This, this is not a test. This is a blessing called glorification. 
when we are perfectly conformed to Christ as the culminating gift of our salvation. And so, so to draw all this together, we see Paul point us to how Christ will complete our redemption in making us perfectly holy. Christ will do that for us. And the present relevance, here we, so the present relevance for this is that you, if that, if that coming of Christ is our hope, if we look forward to that, when Christ will make us perfectly like Him, we should be longing for that holiness now. Desiring it. Holiness will always come by grace. But we should be thirsty for that grace. Having that godly dissatisfaction where we long for more of Christ. And when Christ is our vision, He will be the Lord of our heart. When, when we remain fixed on the gospel of salvation, in which we proclaim that Christ Himself was condemned in our place, climbed the cross, died for our sin to take away its penalty, forgive us of every transgression we've committed. When we hold fast to that, when we believe we are washed clean in the blood of our Savior, when that is our focus, when we remain latched on that, we will remain firm in faith. So let's pray. Father God, we do, we cannot help but think about how our situation is in many ways similar to the Thessalonians. We, we cannot help but notice that there was cultural pressure on them to adopt societal religion. And, and we feel some of that ourselves. And we pray that just as, as by the power of the Holy Spirit, you brought about faith in them so that their, Timothy was able to bring back a good report. We pray that now, today, tomorrow, and always, there will be a good report to be made about us. We pray that those who have invested in our lives would be able to rejoice at what they see in us now. And that they would be able to take comfort as we grow in love for our fellow saints and in love for others. And we pray that you would increase us and abound us as Paul prayed for these Thessalonians. And our love for the world around us, people in our midst. But we pray foremost that you would set our eyes on Jesus. That you would keep our hearts in love with Him and trusting in His work. And we pray for those in our midst who have not trusted in Christ yet. We pray that now is the day of salvation. We pray that there would be no delay. Because as we see in Zechariah 14, there is a day of judgment. And we pray that none here would endure that outside of Christ. We pray that you take us all and that you would give us faith, that you would open our eyes, that you would make us Christians, and that you would keep us Christians. Keep your hand tightly wrapped around us. 
Help us not to trust in the culture. Help us not to trust in much it likes us, how comfortable it is. But help us to trust in Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is our sure and steadfast anchor in heaven. And so let us long to see him again. And preserve us in faith and holiness. And we pray these things for his sake. Amen.